1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ore Ogumbi.
2: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: In the 1990s, North Korea endured a famine that killed hundreds of thousands. Worrying reports regarding its ongoing food crisis suggest the country is once again in a dire situation. Can the regime avoid a catastrophe on the same scale this time?
2: And if you ask most people what baseball games are like, the answer is likely to be slow. That's how many old-school fans like it. But the sport is failing to attract young ones, so authorities are trying to make things a bit speedier and spicier. First up, though, Emmanuel Macron, France's president, is packing his bags and heading to Beijing for three days of meetings. Yesterday, ahead of his departure, he welcomed Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission's president. The pair will set off together with an entourage of business leaders. But there's more on the agenda than striking deals. Much more. China's president Xi Jinping recently went to Moscow to meet with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin. Their no-limits friendship is a growing concern to the West, as Russia's war in Ukraine grinds on. But Mr. Macron's diplomatic and commercial interests stretch beyond simply shunning China, as America's leaders might like him to.
3: So this is a real balancing act for all the leaders involved, but especially for President Macron of France.
2: Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor.
3: He's very keen to reengage with China economically and to try to establish a different kind of relationship with China than what the Biden administration wants. But at the same time, Mr Macron is really under pressure to deliver uh, some kind of concession from China in terms of uh, greater help in bringing an end to the war in Ukraine.
2: You say it's a, a delicate balancing act for all the leaders involved. What about from the Chinese side? What what are the issues for for President Xi? So President Xi
3: has been trying much of the last year to sort of drive a wedge between Europe and America. He saw an opportunity with the war in Ukraine to try to convince European governments that they were sort of pawns in American strategic manipulation. That support for Ukraine was only going to result in further bloodshed and more profits for American arms makers. But that message has fallen pretty flat in Europe. Attitudes towards China have hardened a lot over the last year, in large part because of China's support for Russia over the war in Ukraine. That's also starting to translate into policy. But as China emerges from kind of COVID induced isolation, A lot of European governments and businesses are very keen to re-engage with China economically. So uh, Xi Jinping is very keen to try to exploit that and, again, to try to encourage Europeans to uh, cultivate a different kind of relationship with China than the one that Biden administration is advocating.
2: And from the economic side of that, will he find a, a willing audience in Mr Macron?
3: Yes, I think he will. Mr Macron, like many European leaders, is under pressure from his own business community, to try to create more opportunities in the Chinese market. The whole of Europe is still suffering the economic fallout from the war in Ukraine. So anything that helps to boost economic growth in Europe is a plus. He'll be traveling to China with a large delegation of French business executives from companies including Airbus, the aviation giant, EDF, an electricity producer which has worked with China on nuclear energy projects. And several
2: business deals are expected to be signed. But as you say, he has to balance those business interests with something of an interest in China's relationship with Russia.
3: That's right. You know, President Macron is no dove when it comes to dealing with China. He was an early advocate of restricting Chinese investment in strategic industries. At the same time, he believes very firmly in Europe's strategic autonomy. So he thinks that Europe should have a relationship with China distinct from America's. He does not want to isolate or to contain China, but he also has to take into account the views of Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, because the whole point of inviting her along on the trip was to try to demonstrate unity within Europe and European support for his approach to the relationship with China. And that has been complicated to a large degree by a speech that Ms. von der Leyen made on March the 30th when she outlined a much more confrontational approach towards China, which was closer to the American position.
4: Just as China has been ramping up its military posture, it has also ramped up its policies of disinformation and economic and trade coercion. This is a deliberate policy targeting other countries to ensure they comply.
3: She said that Xi Jinping clearly wants China to become the world's preeminent power. And she also voiced a lot of skepticism about China's position on the war in Ukraine and the peace plan that China proposed in in February.
4: Any peace plan which would in effect consolidate Russian annexations is simply not a viable plan. How? China continues to interact with Putin's war will be a determining factor for EU-China relations going forward.
2: And so on that question of Ukraine, what odds that some inroads will be made here when there are so many different factors at play?
3: So I think Mr. Macron wants several things on Ukraine. One is that clear commitment from China that it won't provide Russia with lethal weapons. Another is that Xi Jinping will play a more active and constructive role in trying to bring peace to Ukraine, possibly by speaking directly with Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. But I think more broadly, Mr. Macron sees China as a potential game changer on Ukraine. Possibly the the only one in the world, is the way that some French officials put it, because of its economic clout, because of its relationship with Russia And so he wants to keep China sort of in play as a potential broker of peace talks, mediator, or whatever role China might play further down the line.
2: And to your mind, is there a sense of mutual exclusivity here? Can everyone get what they want out of this? Or is one thing at the expense of another? Is there a chance all of this could fall apart if someone falls off the balance beam here?
3: I don't think there's a risk that it all falls apart, but um, I think the visit will be very important in determining the future course of Europe's relations with China. It's not going to reverse that trend towards a sort of harder, more realistic posture towards China across the continent, but it could limit the speed and scope of that change. If President Macron does manage to get some concession on on Ukraine in particular, um, then I think that will embolden those within Europe who advocate an economic re-engagement with China and an approach towards China that is distinct from America's. And that could really complicate the Biden administration's efforts to keep Europe on board as it tightens its restrictions on the technology trade with China. On the other hand, if Mr. Macron fails to get a sufficient concession from Xi Jinping on Ukraine, and even in rhetorical terms, then that's really going to embolden those within Europe and elsewhere who advocate a more more confrontational approach towards China. So I don't think this is ever going to translate into the kind of division that Xi Jinping would like to see between Europe and the United States, but I do think it it could become harder for the Biden administration to keep Europe on board to the extent that it wants in terms of cooperating in its efforts to contain China's military and technological power.
2: Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. The relationship between China and America is the focus of this week's episode of Drum Tower, our show about China. Our editor-in-chief, Zenny Minton-Bettos, will be sharing her thoughts. The episode will be available to download later today.
3: Hi, this is
1: Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.
4: On February 10th, a man in his 70s went down to the local Communist Party office in Haesan, which is a city in the northern part of North Korea.
1: Andrew Knox is our Korea's correspondent.
4: He waited for party members to arrive for work and then called out, I'll die of starvation if things continue like this. Please give me food. Pretty soon, people realized he was doing this and they went and joined him. Quite a crowd gathered. In a country where you can be sent away to a prison camp or, even worse, for causing a disturbance, this kind of dissent is really very rare. In fact, we only know about it because of Rimjingang, which is a secretive group of journalists in North Korea. And this isn't the only report of a lack of food causing real problems for the people of North Korea.
1: So Andrew, what is going on in North Korea?
4: so north korea is currently in the midst of a food crisis it's not a new thing particularly it's been going on for quite a long time now but the indications we have suggest that at the moment it's particularly bad the country essentially sealed itself off when the pandemic started and that caused trade to drop it caused imports of food to disappear and Various measures that they've taken in that time have also damaged what sort of internal markets there are. In fact, it's been so bad over the course of the pandemic that the regime itself actually drew attention to the food situation at several points. Most recently, at a party meeting which ran from the end of February into early March... Kim Jong Un, the country's dictator, called upon party cadres to usher in a new era of rural development, what he has previously called an agricultural revolution, and frankly it's it's long overdue.
1: Long overdue because
4: this is not a new situation, right? North Korea has long had incredible trouble Feeding its people. This was at its worst in the 90s when, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the entire structure of the North Korean economy was shook up. Shortcomings of food kicked off this famine that lasted for a few years and killed between 200,000 and maybe 3 million people, depending on the estimates. We're certainly not looking at something that's quite that scale or magnitude at the minute, but North Korea has perpetually had trouble with. Agriculture and getting enough food into the country. This last year in particular, there was quite a lot of bad weather. There was extended drought followed by really heavy rainfalls. We can see from South Korean data that there was only 4.5 tons of produce, which is down 3.8% compared to the year before. But still sort of within the range of what we've been seeing in terms of total production for the last decade or so. That kind of a number, though, is about 1.2 million tons less than the UN's World Food Program estimated in 2019 that, in fact, North Korea needed to feed all its people. Even that kind of long-term deprivation can really have cumulative effects.
1: And I guess North Korea is reluctant to request help.
4: The regime is notoriously prideful, which doesn't mean that they wouldn't necessarily ask for help. They have taken aid in the past. These days, they tend to be much more trade-oriented, but even that's been a problem recently. It's certainly true that international humanitarian groups like the UN's World Food Program could help. They, in fact, have tripled the budget that they'd like to allocate to North Korea for the first half of this year. But that requires access, which no one has at the moment. The borders are really hermetically sealed. And the WFP's last international employee left the country back in 2021. So it's not really clear whether or not they'd be able to provide the kind of aid that they have done in the past. On top of that, the North Koreans are not necessarily willing to take it. The party's newspaper actually called foreign aid a poison candy. In fact, said that The country's honour and dignity couldn't be bought with grain or money. One possibility that remains is that they could turn to China for help, as they have done often in the past.
1: So just how much help are we talking about here? Now,
4: in 2022, they imported more than 56 million kilograms of flour and also a small but not insignificant amount of cereal. This did a little bit to take the edge off, but... Frankly, a lot of what they used to get was imported from China off the books. And at the minute, with the border sealed and not that much freight coming across, it's likely that that's had an impact on the amount of food they're able to get into the country. Now, we have seen that cross-border trade pick up a little bit in the last few months, but it's still well below what was moving before the border sealed. The other really important thing here is that North Korea imports pretty much all of its fertilizer, so not being able to get that is really disastrous for its agriculture.
1: So what is North Korea's government going
4: to do? What they really need is an exit strategy. In the short term, that probably just means trying to get more trade moving across the borders. Prior to the pandemic, there was quite a lot of smuggling, but also quite a lot of semi-licit movement of goods across the border. And the regime didn't love that because it's intent on controlling as much of what goes on in the country as it possibly can. So any opening of the borders would probably happen at a slowish pace and one they can control. At the same time, they really need to do something more radical in order to develop the agriculture sector or to change their model. And I mean, they're aware that Things need to change. Mr. Kim has called for changes before. He's called for this agricultural revolution, but every time he declares reformist intent, we end up with pretty little to show for it.
1: So what now? Could this get as bad as the famine that North Korea had in the nineties?
4: From the people I spoke to, that seems unlikely. Essentially what happened after the famine in the nineties was a dual process of small markets growing up in the absence of state authority, whereby North Koreans could do a limited amount of trading. And at the same time, you got the growth of this small-scale farming, little garden plots, not huge amounts of food, but enough to keep going. That infrastructure still exists despite the state's slightly difficult relationship with it. So as long as that's in place, there's this barrier to sliding back to the worst of the famine. But any reform that's going to provide enough food for North Koreans to really properly feed themselves is unlikely to happen quickly. It's just not the government's priority. North Koreans will just be hoping that good start moving from china again they'll hope it happens quickly snow coverage over the winter was below average which could have an effect on the early crops in the year and the barley hump is coming up and that's this lean season that happens before rice and corn can be harvested in the summer but when food from previous harvests is starting to run out none of this is encouraging none of this bodes well for north koreans
1: andrew thank you so much for coming on the show
4: thanks very much for having me That one's driven to center field and deep. Yastrzemski back, still back on the track at the wall. See ya. He
2: picks up where he left off. Home oh, oh, run for Judge. When this year's season of Major League Baseball began in America late last month, things were a little different, a little speedier. You see, America's national pastime is famous for its leisurely pace.
0: Like two something got to happen.
2: Games are so long that toward the end, fans need to get up and move around a bit, leading to the tradition of the seventh inning stretch. A time also for another bit of heritage. Classic anthem, Take Me Out to the Ball Game.
0: Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd.
2: This traditionally unhurried way, these three-hour games it's not really in keeping with other, more modern diversions.
0: So baseball, more than most sports, is known for its love of tradition. It kind of drips with nostalgia. But lately, it's bumped into this problem that supersedes that love.
2: Aaron Braun is our West Coast correspondent.
0: The sport has really been struggling to attract new fans, particularly of younger generations like Gen Z, who might actually be more interested in things like esports than they are in baseball. And so, with three big new rule changes, the league is trying to make this famously slow, lackadaisical sport much more exciting.
2: And so, what are the rule changes?
0: The biggest of the three is the addition of a pitch clock. So the easiest way to think about this is if you think about kind of a shot clock in basketball. So pitchers now have 15 seconds to throw to batters if there's no runners on base and 20 seconds if there are runners on base. And that might not sound like a lot, but it's pretty revolutionary for a sport that is so famously slow.
2: Which is to say before now, pitches could be thrown kind of whenever the pitcher
0: wanted to. Sort of. It's not just the pitchers who were taking their time. It was definitely the batters, too. And that slowed the game down significantly. So prior to this year, it was common for a pitcher to stare down a batter for seconds as if the contest were some kind of gladiatorial battle of the wills. Batters could call multiple timeouts to work at their own pace. They could also fidget with their batting gloves, pace around the batting box. If we go back to that basketball analogy, it's a little bit like what basketball players do before they shoot free throws. They have a little routine, but in baseball, that routine is much longer. And with no time limit, pitchers could throw to first base to try to pick off the base runner who might try to get a lead. But not anymore. Pitchers now have this tight schedule they have to work on, and batters can only call one timeout now when they step up to the plate. So both sides kind of have this schedule like they've never had before.
2: And so has it worked? Have these rule changes sped the game up as intended?
0: It really seems to be quickening the pace, yeah. Last year, spring training games averaged about three hours and one minute, and regular season games were a few minutes longer this year, I crunched the numbers, and an analysis of games up to March 19th suggests that the new rules have shaved off nearly 30 minutes of game time.
2: All of that from just one of the rule changes that you mentioned. What, what are the other two?
0: The other two rule changes are more geared to pumping up the action on the field. And so first, you've got bigger bases. In the past, bases were 15 inches. Now they're 18 inches. And that might seem like a really small change, but hopefully it will have the effect of more stolen bases because that much can really make a difference. And the other change is that they're limiting what is called the shift or how much infielders can move around prior to a hit. So before this year, infielders would have looked at the analytics, and would know where the batter was most likely going to hit the ball, and they would shift accordingly. So in the past, you might see your second baseman and shortstop move to one side of the field or the other to get ready for a ball that they think is being hit to one side of the field. But now you've got to have all four of your infielders in the dirt, so not in the outfield, before the ball is hit. And you have to have two on either side of second base. So it kind of limits how much you can prepare for a hit. And these types of shifts really took off since the early 2000s as teams made greater use of analytics. And that might be really good for plotting out how to win games, but it really had the effect of limiting action on the field. So these new rule changes are kind of trying to combat that cultural change we saw in baseball. And they seem to be working players are stealing more bases and scoring more runs, at least in spring training.
2: But how does all this sit with the traditionalists who didn't want these rule changes coming if they're so loving of tradition?
0: That is a good question. So baseball has this reputation for being America's national pastime. And I think that that has somehow fed the belief that the sport is kind of sacred or untouchable. And while that can be a good thing, reverence for the history of your sport. Baseball is facing this problem of disinterest from younger generations, and it's struggling to try to stay relevant. And I would just say to, to fans who are skeptical of the reforms, who liked the slow pace, they should maybe consider that it's better to have these faster, more action-packed games than a version of baseball that is so stuck in the past that it becomes irrelevant, because no one wants that.
2: Aaron, thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Jason.
3: Otani sends one in the air. Right center field. He's watching it fly. It's a home run. Shohei Otani launches one. For the second straight game, he's hovered.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by getting in touch at podcasts at economist.com.
2: And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.